Welcome to the Indie Matters Podcast. I'm John Ralston, the editor of the Nevada Independent. This week we're taking a departure from our usual format for a forum that I participated in at UNLV. Listen. I said good afternoon. I'm used to saying good evening for our events, so I off to a good start. Thank you all for joining us for our discussion on public policy, politics, and the media today uh, with our three colleagues. I'm not, we're not big on long introductions here at Brookings Mountain West. If you have the printed program, you can read all that about these fine experts. Many of you know John Ralston to my immediate left here, Richard Reeves in the middle, and John Hudak on the far left. Uh, we are here in Greenspun Hall, and we want to thank our Greenspun College family for allowing us to use the facility and the staff who do a great job recording our events. So uh, for those of you, your friends and family who have missed this, they'll be able to catch up in short order. I want to introduce my co-moderator, Michael Bruner, from the communications department here. Michael and I are going to start off with a few questions to get the event rolling, but then we're going to turn to you and allow you to chime in with your thoughts and observations. So with all that, why don't we get started? John, can I start with you? Sure. You, and this will be the easiest, I have individual questions for each of you, which probably can be classified as softball, but we'll get to the tough ones soon enough. You're a senior fellow at Brookings. You've worked with us quite a bit. You've been all over Nevada as well as the country on public policy issues. You run a blog called Fix Gov, Making right. Government Work. How's all that going for you these days? So, um, uh, mission accomplished. Uh, everything's going swimmingly. We're considering closing the blog because we fixed every problem in government and we're ready to move on to the next task. No. Thank, you, thank you all for coming. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, coat check is in the back. Uh, no, but uh, it's interesting. We're in a period, and I'm not referring uh, particularly to the Trump presidency, but we're in a period where uh, there is a tremendous amount of uh, political and policy dysfunction. And so uh, President Bush, President Obama, uh, President Trump have offered us a lot to write about, to be honest. The blog is five years old, so we've only been writing during the Obama and Trump eras. Uh, but in some sense, it's uh, great to have a lot of work to do. In another sense, it's really disappointing to have this much work to do uh, because those types of political and policy dysfunctions trickle down to the day-to-day -day problems that all of you and Americans across this country face. And it is born from polarization. It's born from our own political rhetoric. It's born from inequality, which Richard will talk quite a bit about, um, and he has across campus this week. It's born from an unwillingness to listen to each other and the other side. And it is born from the leadership that we have in this country. Um, I was a pretty vocal critic of President Obama um, from time to time. I am a vocal critic uh, from time to time of President Trump. And we are in a s situation in which our frequent obsession, whether it's positive or negative, with the man in the White House, overwhelms our willingness to address the problems that actually affect us. Whether you love or hate Donald Trump, whether you loved or hated Barack Obama, didn't really affect your ability to put food on the table or to pay back your student loans or to send your kids to college. 
Um, what matters is the policy that those administrations produce. And uh, so, as I said, we have a lot of work to do. My colleagues across the Brookings Institution, um, here at Brookings Mountain West and uh, across campus here, are working on these issues every day. We are one small part of that, uh, but one that, man, the business is good right now because uh, government is so broken. Richard, if I could turn to you and ask you as a former journalist, now scholar at Brookings, someone who's studied and written a very important book. Uh, I'll abbreviate the title since we're only here for an hour and a half. It's, <laughs> it's called Dream Hoarders. Uh, you had the honor recently of being named one of, by Politico, as one of the top 50 thinkers on, on these issues in the country. So what are you thinking about today? Wow. Um, well, first of all, thank you for mentioning the inclusion in the uh, Politico list of the most influential thinkers in the US today. Um, and, and previously, I've thought that that list was a stupid list, totally subjective, uh, entirely clickbait driven, and had no relationship at all to the intellectual quality or scholarship of the people who are on the list. But I must say, this year's list... <laughs> Impressive crowd. Uh, Steve Bannon's also on the list, by the way. <laughs> um, uh, 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 and actually, this whole way in which you kind of frame salience and influence and so on, who, you know, what does it mean to have influence, how are you having influence you know, through a book or whatever, is, I think uh, is a, an important one. Um, so there are some specific things I am thinking about right now, but actually I, I just wanted to take the chance to bounce off what, what John said and the work that they've been doing at FixGov, based partly on my experience of having covered, covered policymaking as a journalist and as a policymaker in government and now as a scholar, is to sort of have to think about policy as a political process and vice versa, rather than in, rather than in isolation because the political context really matters. Um, and I think to this extent, um, Donald Trump has proved to be brilliant at making the political weather and creating a constant sense of giving, you have to react to him all the time. He did it during the primaries, he's doing it as president. Mm -hmm. It's constantly, what, you know, whatever that thing is, there's always a thing that everyone's talking about and reacting to. And I think as John's referring to, is that very often actually quietly, underneath all of whatever the latest thing is, there are some very serious policy decisions being made, made about a whole bunch of issues, like fair housing yesterday, Medicaid last week, et cetera, that go almost unnoticed. And I don't know if it's intentional or not, but if it is intentional, it's rather brilliant. Because while everybody's obsessing about the latest thing that he's tweeted about or whatever this thing is, there, there, there's real policy decisions being made under the surface. And the second thing I think he's very good at um, is creating binaries all the time. It's always yes, no, for, against, with me, against me, etc. And actually the power of binaries uh, in a kind of very attention, you know, short attention span, very busy media landscape is incredibly powerful. You're constantly doing it. And he, didn't, he never backs down. He's always against that person. He doesn't get stop fights, this, this, this. And the thing about binaries is that the world is almost never like that. Uh, the world is almost never yes, no. It's almost never the case that policy X has worked or not worked. It's kind of partly worked and partly hasn't worked. So you can't say, for example, did the, the war on poverty, did it, did it succeed or fail? You can't say, you can't answer that question. What you have to do is say, well, it worked in this way, it didn't work in that way. It, this worked, this, this policy needs to be revised in this way. So the trouble we have as policymakers is that we are intrinsically about nuance and balance. And we're constantly, usually, trying to tell a complex story yeah. right, uh, about a policy. And that, first of all, it means it's harder to give congressional testimony now because they kind of want people who are just going to say A, 
or B, it's sometimes harder to get media attention for your work because they want someone that's very controversial and it's very clear, A, B. If you go on as a Brookings scholar and say, well, it's kind of a bit of A and kind of a bit of B, and if you control for multivariate samples, then a bit of C, and it's very complicated. Everyone's like, God, that was a terrible segment. We're not going to have him on again. <laughs> How boring. So nuance is boring. And boring is hard to get out. And you've, and you've got now, I think, some politicians who are brilliant at binary salience, making the weather, um, and quietly dismantling a whole series of policies that I think we should be concerned about. So that's one of the things I'm thinking about. John, I know you've worn many hats, but now as the editor of Nevada Independent, a nonprofit, nonpartisan media entity, it, it, congratulations, by the way, on sort of a year's anniversary Thank recently. You. Thank you. Uh, if you'd allow me to say, I think it's a must read for <laughs> anyone interested in what's going on in this state. Do go on. Yeah. <laughs> you, you, will you allow that? <laughs> You'll allow that. I'll allow it. Yeah. Uh, having said that, uh, <laughs> Could you reflect on on the year and, and from your from your motivation to creating it to is this a new model for media? Could this could or should this be replicated elsewhere? I, I was told that I was going to talk about the political list that I was on at one time, but I guess he, he's the only one. I'm kidding. Uh, I'm kidding. Anyhow, these two gentlemen have totally depressed me, but I'm I'm going I'm to try to uh, uh, come out of that and, and talk about exactly what we're trying to do at the Nevada Independent is to try to do is to cut through what has become, even though it's not a binary world, a binary world. And Donald Trump was the perfect person to capitalize on the, on, on the dysfunction in Washington in, and to be able to uh, sense what wedge issues would work and, 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 and to, to use the politics of division uh, to, to win. You know, people mm. always talk about when I, and when I covered politics for 30 plus years that politics is the art of addition. Uh, uh, Trump turned that on his head and, and he did it masterfully and however, whether you like Trump or hate Trump, that's what he did. Yeah. When I decided to start the Nevada Independent, it, it was, and I, I don't like this expression, but I'll use it now, it was the perfect storm for us. Uh, it, it, was, it was the ascent of Trump and Trump trying to delegitimize the, the news media and to try to say there aren't facts and fiction, I will tell you what facts and fiction are and, and to make people question basic assumptions about reality. Uh, that was happening at the same time that the media uh, uh, here in the state essentially uh, was changing dramatically. You had uh, a, a billionaire uh, more enmeshed in the politics and economics of the state than in any other uh, uh, comparable state take over a news organization and, and use it to his own ends to where people were questioning what was in there too. And so I, I decided it was time to do something that I've always wanted to do, which was start talking about public policy and politics and fact checking in, in, a, in a different kind of way. And so what we've, we do something completely different than almost any news organization uh, that, that, that I know of. For instance, just yesterday, we had two major pieces published. This is on a day, we're, we're, we're a constantly updating site. A 2,000 and a 3,000 word piece on a, on a daily subject. I mean, uh, you talk, we talk about people mm -hmm. who, who have short attention spans uh, and trying to, but these are two very important issues. One was about uh, the gubernatorial candidates and their positions on energy, which is arguably the most important issue confronting uh, this state. And then there was an in-depth piece about the battle for Colorado River water amid the drought. And, and, and you know, those, those do not sound like sexy stories, right? Uh, there was no headline that said, read this and we'll tell you about Stormy Daniels too. Uh, well, that's not what we did. 
Uh, but we're, we, we still believe, I still believe, that the audience is out there for, that, that wants to consume that news. And it's not just confined to this room or a college campus or the ivory towers, anywhere you go. The people do still yearn for information that they can trust, for, 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 for information that's going to help them understand what is not a binary world, as Richard points out. It's a very complex world, getting more complex uh, all the time. And, and, and uh, let me just conclude, at least for now, uh, uh, by saying the biggest problem that's out there is not that there is F-A-K-E, I won't even say it, news. It's that people have changed how they consume news in the time that I've covered politics. I don't just mean through the internet or through, 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 through uh, uh, blogs that they shouldn't be reading. I mean the validation culture has set in in America. Liberals will only watch MSNBC, conservatives mm -hmm. will only watch Fox, not to get illumination, but to get validation. And so they're, they're not willing, uh, and I think you mentioned this, John, people don't talk to each other, they don't get a, a, a they, won't, they won't listen to anybody with, with, with an opposite viewpoint, even if they can make a reasoned case, they're gonna tune it out. That's incredibly dangerous. That's what gives, that's what creates the environment for the rise of a demagogue and, 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 and someone who can essentially turn a gray world into a binary world. See, I can be just yeah, as depressed. You, you cheered everyone up there. Michael. Yeah, I'd love this opportunity, so thank you. Thank you for inviting me. Um, okay, so I've got a problem-solution question, so I'll give you the problem for part of it first. The theme, Make America Informed Again, of course, is a nice play on Make America Great Again. It makes it sound like we used to be more informed, uh, and so I assume maybe we were. I don't know. But I also know with the new media, we've got all the information we need at, the, at our fingertips, mm -hmm. so we've actually got more access to information than ever before. So, problem. What's up? I mean, why? I know it's a general question, but what are the structural factors that are uh, keeping us from using these information technologies in ways that will actually make us informed? And uh, you've already touched on it in your answer, which is why I looked at our co-moderator. Mm -hmm. But still, what are your thoughts on that? What's, what's, what are the reasons we aren't informed? Well, I think part of it is uh, a lot of what John talked about. It's, it's sorting the type of news that you're interested in digesting, and that is you read either a blurb about an article, whether it's in an email blast or whether it's on a website, and you are automatically determining whether to click on this based on whether you agree or disagree with it. And I'm guilty of this too, um, for sure. Uh, but I also think that beyond that, uh, we are in an information environment that is truly overwhelming right now. There is so much information out there, which in a lot of ways is a good thing, uh, but it is very difficult for the average American media consumer to determine what is honest, what is biased, what is the F word that you were unwilling to, mm -hmm. to say. Um, and as I said, while that spread of information is almost certainly a positive in a lot of aspects, uh, you know, media literacy is not strong right now. And that is, I, a lot of people blame this on, oh, we're not teaching civics in, in high school anymore like we used to, or we're not blah, blah, blah. There's a lot of excuses for it. But the reality is people are busy and the number of news sources that they have access to on their smartphone in a given moment is truly uh, troubling. And so mm. to expect the average media consumer to take time out of their day not to read news,
but to learn about how they should read news before they read news is asking an awful lot of a busy, average, middle-class American. So what is easier? Look at Facebook, look at your phone in a pinch, and then just start consuming within the bubble that you have created for yourself, the algorithms have mm -hmm. created for you, um, and that becomes, that becomes really troublesome. And so I think that is a big reason why, despite the ability to be the most informed public possible, that ultimately we fall for fake stories. We believe memes that are posted on Facebook. I'm getting into fights with my mom's friend who I've never met on Facebook yeah. because she's posting garbage that's yeah. fundamentally untrue. I mean, yeah. that's where I'm at. Um, and so that's not healthy no. at all. Um, it's also not healthy for my mom's friendships, I should add. Uh, but, but that's where we are. And, and no matter how much of a professional you consider yourself, no matter how savvy of a media consumer you think of yourself, you're still falling into these traps. And that's not a trap I would have fallen into 10 years ago when I l knew less about media. Um, but it's a product of the environment that we live in and not a product of who we are as an individual, mm. as an intellectual, as a citizen, et cetera. Yeah, I I'll just add to that, and I think it would speak a bit to what you're endeavoring to do, which is we shouldn't confuse information with knowledge. Uh, and I think we've become an information-rich society, but that doesn't necessarily mean we're a knowledge-rich society. Because knowledge is about evaluating information, combining different bits of information to know something with a degree of certainty about the world. So what you're trying to do is make people more knowledgeable, informed, is the subtitle of this event, not information. There is information out there to validate, to use your word, every single position you want to take. Even in my own scholarly work, I do an exercise with some graduate students where I ask them what they want to show about income inequality and then produce a chart that shows that. And every single chart I produce is accurate. I just change some of the methodologies around it. So even within the scholarly community, um, it's, you, you can sort of rig your outcomes. You can do what Bernard Williams said, is smuggle your answer into your question. Mm -hmm. um, and in fact, I'm thinking a bit about Bernard Williams now as we have this conversation, because he wrote a book, the last one before he died, called Truth and Truthfulness. And he essentially made the distinction between the two because he's actually said truthfulness as a behavior and as an, an instinct and as something you're trying to do is it's more important than the idea of truth because actually truth is, is necessarily quite an unstable concept and we're always just trying to get as close to it as possible. What matters is truthfulness, which is an attitude of mind and it's an approach to work, which is to say if I'm doing a piece on energy or inequality, there are different ways to do that, but I am being, trying to be truthful about it. I'm trying to be honest about the way I'm presenting it. I am not smuggling my answer into my question. I am not taking my prior to the information and finding information to confirm my prior, because anyone can do that, right? And the reason I know I'm doing that is when my own work makes me feel uncomfortable and when I have findings that I don't like. Because it is not possible to be doing good work or good journalism and only confirming your prior prejudices, right? By definition, you're not doing good work unless some of your findings are unsettling and discomforting to you and which make you change your mind. And so truthfulness as a value in our media institutions is hugely important. I think John's right about this because the, base, the way the internet works now is the most popular website is essentially some version of tellmewhyimright.com. Yeah. <laughs> and there's a hell of a lot of tellmewhyimright.com. <laughs> My extended family members, same things, rouse on Facebook, I won't name who it is, but a close extended family member <laughs> gets her news from Trump train, the email, 
Facebook or her friends, and an astonishing amount from just forwarded emails whose provenance is always hard to get at. And you try and track it back to where the hell this email came from, which is about, the latest one was about the Muslim takeover of Britain. Um, it's been forwarded so many times that you don't know where it's come from. Um, and a huge amount, and so that, that's where, she, and occasionally television, that's where she gets her news from. So the question really is not, to, we have supply now in institutions like yours and ours. What about the demand? So where, you know, is there enough demand for truthfulness and knowledge-seeking institutions? Because it's about finding trusted brokers. Who are the trusted brokers in this ocean of information? You. That's true. <laughs> you know, I, 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 I like to say, I like to say, yeah, right. I like to say, to piggyback off about, I used to say, I like to say, and you alluded to this, I think, John, is that this is the greatest age of information in the history of the world. Is not, no time is even close to right now. It's also the greatest age of bad information be, be, because of that, yeah. and and the lack of discernment and. There's another component to this that never existed until recently, the velocity with which information moves. And information, as you rightly said, suddenly becomes truth before, and when you pull it back, it's almost too late. Too late. Yeah. Or it often is too late, and you can't uh, uh, pull it back. Yeah. I used to tell people, before I became the editor of my own pub publication, uh, when I was just a columnist, I used to tell other columnists and reporters that the rule of thumb, if you are posting a story, is never read the comments. Because if you read comments, you're going to become depressed for a long time. <laughs> Unfortunately, now part of my job is to read the comments uh, on the site, and, I, and I'm just astounded. Like, just before I came over here, I was reading a story that we posted this morning, and a person clearly had not even read the story, yeah. but was just, and, and not just yeah. one post, but post after post after post. And first of all, you think, how many of these, what are they really doing? I mean, they're not all of them are in their basement with their tinfoil hats, right? Not all of them are the proverbial 400-pound guy in a bed that Trump seems to think hacked the elections and not the Russians. <laughs> Uh, uh, th there are a lot of people out there who are becoming more and more alienated and w don't want to discern whether it's because of confirmation bias or they don't have time. Mm -hmm. When I grew up, my dad was a professor and I had three siblings and we used to sit around the dinner table. We didn't have cell phones. We, we had to pay attention to my father and, we would and he would actually talk about issues of the day mm -hmm. and, 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 and he would force us to actually have conversations. So many families don't operate that way uh, anymore. Kids are on their phones, you know, trying to sneak a look, you know, while dad's talking, you know, to look at Facebook or, uh, mm -hmm. you know, TrumpTrain.com or whatever the hell you're talking mm -hmm. about, which I'm going to go check out. Oh, no. Uh, and <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> but, uh, and, and so the different way of consuming information, the amount of bad information, and worse, the velocity with which information moves. Mm -hmm. Again, this is Trump's evil genius. As he understood this, he has 40 million Twitter followers now. I think he knows that he can change the subject and change, unfortunately, the media's focus with a tweet and put that bright, shiny object mm -hmm. out there for everyone to look at mm -hmm. instead of seeing uh, mm -hmm. what, he's, what he's trying to do. It's not about the fact that he's about to impose these tariffs, which he just signed a couple of hours ago. It's about this. He wants you to pay attention to this because he can change the subject for so many mm -hmm. people. And if the media plays along, and to some extent, I don't buy people in, in my business saying you have to ignore the tweets. You can't. But on the other hand, uh, you have to provide two channels of information. Sure, you report on this. You say when he is actually putting out information that's not true. But you also have to talk about the broader implications. And thank God, 
The major media institutions in this country are still doing it. The best reporting that has ever happened in the history of reporting is happening now at the New York Times and the Washington Post and to, to an extent the Wall Street Journal. They are doing a phenomenal job and they have, they have come to terms with this and they are being able to do both the substantive and deep stories but also call the president and others to account for their statements whether they're in tweet form or a press release. If I could pick up quickly on, on, on two items there. One, uh, John is absolutely right, never read comments. Um, it, uh, our blog at Brookings, FixGov, we actually disabled comments. Um, now, a, a news organization is not in a good position to do that. But some do. But some, some do. do. Um, yeah, we weren't getting happen. anything positive. When we started the blog five years ago, uh, uh, four years ago, uh, we were hoping that it would be a feedback mechanism, which is important. And our email, the blog's email is up, and people can reach out to us if they want to. Uh, but um, I'll be honest, part of the reason, and as the editor, I made the call to disable comments when, when Brookings asked what we wanted to do. I was honestly tired of calling the Capitol Police and the United States Secret Service. That's the reason I disabled comments on our, our blog. Um, not because I didn't want to hear information, <coughs> not because I didn't want to hear criticism of my work. I hear plenty of that on Facebook and Twitter and <laughs> cold calls and weirdly handwritten e uh, mail. Mm. Um, I hear plenty of that. but. Um, the threats and the angst, um, the, mm -hmm. the literal law breaking that happens in comment <coughs> sections um, is, is appalling. And so um, we, we chose to go in that direction and websites that have chosen not to go in that direction don't click on read the comments or don't scroll past the end of, of the article. But the second thing I, I wanted to pick up on about, uh, in, in uh, John said this nicely at the end of his comments about some of the best reporting going on uh, right now at the three largest papers uh, in the country. I think part of what people think about when they think of media and the trouble that we have in this information age is that the quality of reporting has gone down, that the quality of reporters has gone down. That's not true. I, I think millennial reporters get a, an inappropriately bad rap for the work that they're doing. Some of the finest reporters I come into contact with, and I, I won't speak um, uh, for Richard, but uh, we talk to reporters every day. Some of the best questions I get are from young reporters, mm. whether they're McGill students working on a student project, whether they're young reporters at state and uh, local newspapers, whether they're young reporters at national newspapers. They're doing their homework in remarkable ways. Uh, the journalism students that this university is going to graduate will be some of the best that this country has. This idea that there is this, this lack of knowledge, this lack of talent in journalism right now is absolutely nonsensical. And in fact, two reporters who I've worked with in the past who um, are extraordinarily talented are from this state, Molly Ball and Amber Phillips. Amber Phillips at the Washington Post is an unbelievable reporter. Every time I speak to her, I know that whatever quote I give her is going to be accurate and that the story that that quote is in is going to be powerful. She is not a grizzled 60-year-old reporter. Um, she is someone who is doing some of the finest work uh, at the Washington Post. Stephen Bates is here. His daughter called me a couple of months ago to interview me for a piece um, it, for a uh, sort of a, a, a long-form journalism piece at Harvard. Uh, that piece came out last week. It was remarkable for a, uh, an undergraduate working on a complex issue, marijuana policy in the United States, 
Um, I was blown away. I'm not saying that just because Dad's in the audience either. Um, I wouldn't be saying it if it was a bad piece, granted, but it was a remarkable piece. Uh, the, the, the pool of good work, and, and John's colleagues, I'm sure um, it, John can attest to this, is as good now as it has ever been. And I, I think the, uh, the industry has a lot to be proud of, and uh, universities like this have a lot to be proud of in cultivating that talent from the ground up. Well, let me just say once more real quickly, uh, pivot off of that, is that when I started in Nevada Independent, started by hiring three reporters, and, and they, I, I believe that they were the three best young reporters in the state. And but when I say young, two of them were 24, and the other one was 29 when, when, when we started. They literally, literally, I had, I had very high expectations for them, but they literally brought me to tears sometimes reading their copy. It was so good, so deep, so mature. They work, all these, you know, uh, cliches about millennials, uh, forget them. With the, mm -hmm. the, 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 they work as hard as any reporter I've ever, been, I've ever worked with, uh, and, and they want to be better, they want to learn, they're, they're, and, and I am so proud of, 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 of the kind of work that they're doing. When I mentioned the, the two pieces that, that I mentioned earlier, those are done by, by, by two reporters in their 20s, and they're as in-depth as any ex experienced, grizzled veteran, yeah. uh, 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 I guess that's what I am, could have done. So uh, I, I, I'm just, th they do exist, and I hope they're not oases in, 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 you know, in this sea of dysfunction and, 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 and terribleness that we're talking about right now. Yeah. Well, I, so I'm reflecting on my own experience as a journalist, and my, <coughs> my view is, I think, similar to yours, that the best journalism is better than it was before, uh, for some of the reasons that you both identified. So when I think when I was, when I was a journalist, The Guardian and The Observer in London, uh, so daily and a weekly, uh, the, the internet didn't really exist. Right. <laughs> so it's a very different world. Um, and actually, that meant we weren't held to the same account in the accuracy of our reporting. Um, basically, I remember someone saying, I won't name which journalist it was, and he was talking about the definition of whether a story is true or not. I said, what's the definition of a, of a true story? And he said, a true story is one that isn't provably false within one news cycle. Provably false within one news cycle. The news cycle then was 24 hours, right? So if, you could stand, if your story could keep standing for 24 hours, you were golden, basically. Now, if you put out something that's incorrect, somebody from your organization or Brookings or something will notice within an hour, yeah. and you'll have to correct the piece, and you'll have to say that it was corrected as a result of so-and-so. So the scrutiny that's there is, is absolutely bad. There's no question about that. The worst journalism is much worse. No and so question. I think what we're seeing is a growing inequality in the quality of journalism. And then the question is who's going to the good stuff and who's using it? And the first point, how do you fund the good stuff? Because the market's completely changed. The economics of the yeah. media has completely changed, yeah. right? Uh, and so you cannot rely on the same economics model, and I'm sure your economic model has to reflect that too, because right? when I even did it, the Guardian would just about break even on the basis of ad revenue and some, some people buying the paper. Imagine that, um, uh, buying the paper. So the economics has changed. I think the question then remains is, what impact does that good journalism have on politics? Because it used to have quite a big impact, because it was the only way you could really get information through those trusted brokers. So if you had a bad story in The Guardian or the BBC or whatever, then it would seriously affect politics. Whereas now, even when you have high-quality journalism that's really breaking some very important news, the question is, does it matter as much as it used to for the political outcomes, or can it just be ignored? It, 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 it doesn't matter as much because it's more diffuse, right? There's so many outlets out there now. People can put up a, a website and say, I'm a journalist, and they can publish yeah. something. If they're clever yeah. enough, they can get it to go viral, yeah. and, 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 and they push it. 
uh, out there. And again, that that is something that, that people who have learned to exploit it, and, 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 and Trump is is, is uh, either the apex or the nadir of that, depending on how you want to look at it, mm. uh, he, he, he was able to do that. But you're exactly, you're exactly right. It used to be, uh, long before most of you in this room were born, that people would get most of their news from Walter Cronkite, or get most of their news from Dan Rather or Peter Jennings, and uh, you know, and that people never would even question anything that they were putting out uh, on on their newscast. But it's not that way. And again, I want to go back to what I said because I do think this is very important about information: the velocity with which information moves. It is so much harder now to pull it back. And unfortunately, mm. yeah, when we make a mistake, what we do, and we have a policy of doing this at the Independent, not only do we correct it. But we explain what the mistake was yeah. at the mm -hmm. bottom and what time yeah. it was corrected. Yeah, so you will see in many newspapers, take a look at their websites, it'll say updated at such a time. They won't explain what was changed. Mm -hmm. And unless you have a screenshot of the original version, some, you don't know whether they've made a serious mistake that they've changed yeah. or something else. I think we need to be more transparent. That's mm -hmm. what we're committed to. I mean, this is not just to hype the, the independent, which is, by the way, at the NevadaIndependent.com. Mm -hmm. uh, but, but seriously, <laughs> but, but seriously it, it's, it's why people don't have faith. In, in, because they do, they change stories. They don't tell you why they're yeah. updating them, even if they've uh, been corrected. And I, I think unless the media decides that it's going to interact with its readers or viewers in, in an open way, I don't, believe, I don't just mean through the comments section, um, I, I, that we have a real problem because there is a more, the media has never been viewed more negatively than, than it is today. And in some ways, it's the media's own arrogance and some high-profile mistakes that mainstream organization made that have contributed to that. And it's tough to break through that, right? Why are we not FAKE News? Why are we mm. better than anybody else, right? Mm -hmm. It's very difficult to break through that kind of cynicism that's out there now. And to that point, John, I think one of the most dangerous things in our politics right now is, and, and the president is engaged in this, I, I won't beat around the bush, is the criticism of retractions and corrections. Retractions and corrections are really good things. Yeah. That is democracy at work. Um, it's lousy when you have to issue it. I put out a piece a month and a half ago, and I, it was on uh, the VA secretary. And I, I took him to task pretty good. And the criticism of Secretary Shulkin was on point. But I mischaracterized a study that was done on um, uh, an issue of veterans health care. And I got an email a couple of days later from the author of that study who very respectfully took me to task for the way I characterized this study. And my first reaction was, well, she must be wrong. Um, and I heard her out and reread the story, uh, the study rather, and realized I was wrong. So then my second reaction was, damn it, <laughs> I screwed yeah. it up. Yeah. And then my third reaction was to let my comms director know and to let our editorial staff know, we have to issue a correction. And exactly as you said, John, not just make the correction, but explain that a correction has been made. And that stung a little bit, um, but it's the right thing to do. And the criticism of retractions and corrections is one of the most dangerous things a political elite could do, because what is the alternative? Mm -hmm. Fake news. It is a flawed story that doesn't get corrected or a corrected story that you never knew was wrong in the first place. And how many of you reread a news article? Mm. I don't. I don't have the time to reread news articles, especially in the information environment we have now. Um, and so the first time you read a news article is likely the way you're going to consume it. And if there's an error in it, 
um, you might be pointed to it because a correction has been put out, but not because you're reading through it again and comparing your memory of the first version to this new second version of it. So those things are healthy. The criticism of it is extraordinarily unhealthy. Mm. I'm almost afraid to ask my follow-up <laughs> because I know the audience probably has a lot of questions. So Bill, how would you like to proceed? <coughs> give, give it your best shot. Well, the follow-up is, is equally vague in a way, but the Greenspun College is obviously... The yeah, the Greenspun College is obviously very interested in solutions to these sorts of problems, and so that's the next part of my question. You all deal with the media on a daily basis. You either con construct media or respond to media. You deal with corporate media, nonprofit media. You are very well aware of what the problems are. So now I'm handing you each a magic wand and saying, fix it. In other words, don't worry about reality. Here's the magic wand. What needs to be done? Oh, please. No. Oh, please. <laughs> please. <laughs> well, I think John solved it, yeah. so I think he should you go have to first. first. Listen, I, I, I essentially was given a magic wand, right? And, and, and I'm trying to fix it even in the small universe uh, in, in, in which uh, I exist. Um, you can't force people uh, to read you. You can't force people to watch your television station or click on your, your, webs your, your, your website. Uh, but you do have to be much more cognizant, I think, if you're in the media, about what people uh, will respond to and, and what they won't. For instance, and I'll, this is a minor example, but I'll give it. There's a big, de big, a lot of debate within the media about video on the internet and whether people will watch, get, go onto your website if you have video there or not. Mm -hmm. But most people, and you'll probably tell me whether I'm right or wrong in this room, will not watch long videos, it turns out. There's been a lot of studies. Will they watch a minute and a half? Yeah, maybe. But are they going to yeah. watch a 15-minute video about Probably not. Pro probably not. And so you gotta, you've got to understand what people have time for. People don't have the same amount of time as, the, as, as they used to. There are too many choices to make. Why should they choose you in, in, instead of another place to get their information? Uh, you've I don't think you should sensationalize. I don't, I don't think you should use gimmickry. But to some extent, you have to find a way to draw people in. And so you have to be open to new things, to new ideas. You have to try things that don't work. We, we've done that at The Independent, uh, to try to draw people in. Uh, and and uh, unfortunately, people do respond to the kinds of bells and whistles that might not draw them to sites that are going to give them uh, uh, the, the kind of truth, information, knowledge uh, th th that they need. And so um, I don't know what the answer is. Uh, all, all I know is, is, is that if you, if you just give up and if you don't mm. try and you just succumb and you say, I'm going to do what everybody else uh, is doing, then you might as well just not be in the business anymore. And I'm, I'm unwilling uh, to, to, to do that. I mean, you talk about economic model. We survive right now just on donors. That's how we start. We're a nonprofit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We're trying to broaden our base. We're doing some events now. We're, we're applying for journalism foundation grants. Yeah, but there's essentially is. very few uh, uh, publications like us in the country. Very few. And it's, it's, not, it's not easy. Uh, I, I, I spend uh, uh, more time doing being a fundraiser now than I do being a journalist, which is frustrating too, although this, the, a certain shamelessness that I brought to writing about politics I'm able to bring to fundraising, so it's somewhat helpful. Uh, uh, but uh, the, the, serious, the serious point is, is that there is no magic bullet, there, there's no easy solution uh, to this, but hopefully there are people out there who are talking about this, who care enough about it, who go through the, pro the rigorous process that John talked about when he found out he made a mistake, which by the way, 
Almost any journalist you meet, if they find out they made a mistake, are not going to go, let's cover it up, let's not do anything. They're going to feel awful. They're going to yeah. want yeah. to correct it. Yeah. But the manner of the correction, the transparency of the correction does matter. And until we start doing that more and saying we're as fallible as all of you and we're willing to show you how we are and tell you how we screwed up or why we screwed mm -hmm. up. I've already done something in, in, in the history of the Independent in just one year that I have not seen almost any other news organization do, which is I write blog posts as the editor explaining how we reported what I know are going to be controversial stories uh, and give people a window into the reporting process and the editing process. Yeah. We need to be more accessible. Uh, in terms of how we do our job. And I'll, I'll use the word again, I think it's been a problem for the media. Our own arrogance saying, you know, we, have, we, are, we are invested with this noble purpose because of the First Amendment. You little plebes just let us do our mm -hmm. thing and, we'll, and, and, and you should trust us. That's inoperable anymore, right? Yeah. It just doesn't work. Yeah, so I, I was say something similar about the potential of the elitism uh, and arrogance of the media in the past being part of the problem. Too so many British accents, too, I think. Yeah, well, they're the worst. <laughs> they're the worst elitists, aren't they? Uh, I should know. Um, so in the long run, I think the hope has to be that we will have sufficiently funded independent news organizations who become the trusted brokers, the people who are the truth seekers. And you know they're truth seekers when they correct their errors and they do so loudly. Um, but they have, a, as I said earlier, truthfulness is in their DNA. You know, I, we get stuff wrong, right? Uh, everyone, everyone who's trying to do what gets stuff wrong. If you're not doing, getting stuff wrong, you're not doing good work. And there, needs, there needs to be a rightness to wrongness. And that's also a cultural issue too. Because we punish politicians and academics who change their mind or who reverse a position or who revise their papers. They are punished in the academy. They're pu punished in politics, right? If, we, if a politician stands up and says, well, I believe that yesterday, now I believe it today, how do we cover that? Massive U-turn, huge, you know, and a humiliating U-turn, politician X. So we don't applaud them. And we don't applaud the academic either. And so, there, so there's a culture around that. In the long run, I think it's Weber who said politics is the slow drilling of hard boards. This is a long run business. I also think we should look as scholars and as those who are engaged in these public conversations at, at our, ourselves in exactly the way that John identifies. I, I ran a blog, I'm running a blog at Brookings and for quite a while I had a 500 word cap. So there's a space for long reads, but I said you can't write more than 500 words. You've got to <laughs> summarize your main points, a couple of charts, really quickly. And when we did the metrics, we discovered that that blog had more time spent on page than any other blog in the institution. There was an inverse correlation between how long people spent on a page and how long the piece was. That's because they knew they were going to be able to get through it quickly and that they were just going to get high quality information very quickly. Scholars and academics very often indulge themselves with a long-winded introduction of the literature and why this is important and what my motivation is and so on. And they actually think that, not do, that, that to be told not to do that and to get to the point is somehow unscholarly. It's somehow not intellectually respectable. And so it's on incumbent on us too, not just to sit back and say, well, if these people won't read my 3,000-word <laughs> impenetrable paper on social mobility, well, more fool them. Right? That's not good enough. We've got to get out there. We've got to get good quality scholarship into the bloodstream uh, or stop complaining about the fact that poor quality scholarship gets into the bloodstream because they had better search engine optimization than <laughs> I promise we're going to get right to your questions <laughs> after this, but I'm going to have to put you to the test then, Richard. 
You gave a great talk last night, and I know everyone will want to watch the 45-minute lecture when we have it up <laughs> everyone. on our website. Literally and, everyone. And, and you should. Yes. Is there a uh, scholarly introduction on that that I can well, skip over? It's 45 over? minutes yeah. long. Yeah. 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 I, it, 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 but it was, I'm going to ask him to create it right now. Yeah. I'm gonna, you, you raised some, you, you showed some very new and impressive data, both positive and negative about Las Vegas, Nevada, and our region. Could you just distill a couple of the key points to entice people to actually Seek the longer version? Sure. So, I mean, of course, it was difficult for me to keep it down to 45 minutes. <laughs> so now you're asking me to do it in, what, like 45 seconds. Um, so my, uh, my interest is in upward mobility, especially into the middle class. That's where most of my work is. That people who, are, people who, are, who come into the world into poor households don't get stuck there, and they can rise up the ladder. Uh, the Mountain West metros, the big cities in Mountain West, actually do a pretty good job of that because they have a you know, strong middle class and moving up. But some of them do better than others. And Vegas does quite well considering that Vegas is doing so into a headwind of various kinds. The headwinds that Vegas faces on this front are very pretty poor quality school outcomes, um, quite a large uh, a poor population, low levels of social capital, kind of connectedness, etc. Um, so there are some headwinds. Nonetheless, Vegas seems to do reasonably well on that upward mobility metric. Why? Well, because it actually does have a reasonably strong middle class. So it seems that people can get middle class wages in Vegas for one reason or another. And two, because some of the institutions of post-secondary education, like this one, are among the best performers in terms of taking people from modest backgrounds uh, in terms of their family's income and giving them a, and, they, and ending up in the middle class themselves. And so if your, if your metric is mob mobility into the middle class for kids from more modest backgrounds, then some of the institutions of higher education like this one, actually just based on the facts, are taking a lot of kids from the middle class and below. And in fact, this institution is unusual in that it's in taking increasing numbers of kids from the bottom 60 and the middle 60 percent. It's serving over time more kids from, from uh, less affluent backgrounds. And they do pretty well uh, in the labor market by comparison to their competitors. And so it's hard to know what's going on there. But I think this kind of melting pot idea and this sort of sense of dynamism may be part of the story. But as, as a scholar, I think it's just incumbent on us to look at the facts and then try and figure out what's going on. That's the shortest I can do it in. I'll tweet it later. <laughs> Let's turn to the audience now. Can we, anybody with a question? Hi, gentlemen. Thanks for your time. Um, I recently spent, uh, through my um, graduate school program, a week out in Brookings in D.C. a couple of months ago, and I was struck by how engaged all the scholars were in the actual issues, and I couldn't help but notice this was my, only my second time being in D.C., and this was across the board, whether it was at AEI or at Brookings, um, how different that was being from the Midwest, where I came from, and kind of lived few different places in the south and out west now and the feeling that I had was for you all and I John I assume it applies to you as well is that government and politics seem very much like a science and where I'm from and the experience is that government and politics is a religion and I have a family that's been done very well in real estate and has had um, negative experiences with Donald Trump prior to his being president, and now they're very vocal supporters because they are Republicans. Um, is there that disconnect between DC and um, in, uh, journalism and the rest of the world? And if so, how do you bridge that gap? Well, the, the gap is staggering. Um, what we would talk, if I was to uh, 
go to the other building at Brookings and plop down in a chair in Richard's office and discuss something policy oriented, that would be a different conversation than if I was giving a talk outside of the institution. And we're all guilty of that uh, disconnect. Some days we are better, at, uh, better than others uh, at doing that translation. And it's not a translation that is, oh, let me dumb down my brilliant ideas. A, they're usually not that brilliant. <laughs> B, it's not a matter of dumbing them down. It's a matter of making them appetizing. You know, uh, everybody likes beef, but some people like ground beef and some people like steak and some people like Salisbury steak. I mean, there's <laughs> different tastes for the same product. And so uh, Richard's book, uh, Dream Hoarders, um, which I very much encourage you to, uh, uh, to buy, um, is uh, one that I think straddles both camps. It is one that is um, thorough and empirical, but it's also very approachable and you're able to understand a lot of what is very deep thought behind it. That's our challenge in academia, our challenge in journalism, is to boil down what is often complex information into a message that people care about. One of the reasons why I am so thrilled to be associated with Brookings Mountain West, why I come out um, at least two weeks a year, though increasingly Rob and Bill are having me come out much more often, uh, is that I get out of that shell, I get out of that beltway bubble, and that's a term that's thrown around a lot, but it's a genuine one. And I get to come back to what's really my roots. I'm not a native Nevadan, um, but I went to public school every day of my life from kindergarten through the day I graduated college. Um, I went to a public land grant university. When I'm in this setting, I am much more at home than I am around my own colleagues at Brookings. Um, because my experience in a lot of ways is your experience. And so the ability to bring my ideas out here is a, an invigorating one, and one that is a test for me to make sure that what I'm working on, people care about. The way I'm able to communicate what I'm working on is something that people will care about. Something that is going not only to have impact, but is going to be something that people are gonna go home, and if they're willing to put their iPhone down at the dinner table, maybe discuss it once a month. That's, that's an exciting thing, but it's not something you do if you stay in your office on Massachusetts Avenue in Washington, D.C., and never go out and talk to the public and talk to journalists and engage with students and engage <coughs> with people who disagree with you on a regular basis. Otherwise, you're just a crusty old professor. And we have those. A lot of places have those. I would guess there might be one or two at UNLV. They're, none of them are here, of course. Um, but uh, uh, but th that exists. And when you take a class with that faculty member, it's lousy. And when you're listening to a scholar from a think tank in DC who's unable to break out of that, that's a lousy discussion too. So the best among us are the ones who get out of the office and get out of DC and get on the ground and talk to what is a, a great group of people who I get to experience a bunch of times a year out here and elsewhere around the country. Uh, you know, I think, I think though, it's not quite as simple as the disconnect between Washington and, and the rest of the country. As it is, there's a lot of different things going, going, going on there. First of all, um, if you talk about the political class in Washington, they're from every state, right? They came from places that are very uh, different than Washington, a lot, a lot of them did. Um, and then we can talk forever about the cocooning that goes on there and how they get insulated from reality once they get there and how once they get there they never want they, they, they to leave uh, because they lead a pampered existence and then they lose touch. That's the classic thing, right? They yeah. lose touch with uh, the, 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 the real world. 
But the real problem, I think, uh, uh, is much more an urban versus rural in this country, big city versus mm -hmm. rural America, something else that, that Donald Trump capitalized mm -hmm. on. And I believe, and I, I forget the act, he's got the picture of all the counties he won versus yeah. the counties that yeah. Hillary won. And he won thousands of counties, and she won very few, right? Mm -hmm. Because so many of them are not mm. populous that, that, mm. that he won. And people who live in Peoria can't relate to people who live in New York City and vice versa. And at some point, they got to the point where they don't want to. And they think they're the enemy, or they think they're the rubes. Or, 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 and so that becomes almost intractable. And, and, and that's a real problem. Uh, you know, there's a lot of people who live in Las Vegas, uh, as I have for, for more than three decades, who don't even, couldn't even tell you the names of, of, of other cities in Nevada besides Las Vegas and Reno and Sparks and maybe Henderson and North Las Vegas, right? They don't know where Gabs is or Elko, maybe even Mesquite. <laughs> mm. It's such a different world. It's such a different world. And, and, and so again, this goes to the uh, overall theme where people don't talk to each other from those two worlds. They don't take any time to try to understand different perspectives that have gained, that, that, that they've gained from those two worlds. That creates more balkanization and it creates more division in the country that skillful politicians yeah. can exploit yeah, yeah. and stay around for a long, long yeah. time. That, uh, that class segmentation you see, and I, I'm, I'm big, I've been pretty hard on, on our own work, but. I'm going to attack both snobbery and inverse snobbery. There's a snobbery about some experts, which is my stuff's going to be inaccessible, and that's your fault if you can't be bothered to read it. And I'm in my ivory tower, and, uh, and you know, Twitter is for kids, and you know, I'm not doing, you know, just yeah. right. They make a fetish of inaccessibility. You know, Richard Thaler, in his lovely book, just won the Nobel Prize. He writes, not only do academic <coughs> economists not value clear writing, they active, they are actively suspicious of it. And that is so true. If you write clearly and crisply, there's a lot of academics think you can't be serious. Yeah, okay? It has to be inaccessible in order for it to be scholarly. That's a massive problem. There is a problem of inverse snobbery too, which Trump exploited, which is that actually there's a kind of anti-professional inverse snobbery, which is people who sound like they're experts and people who sound like they're using facts and so on. Well, screw you, I've got, I'll go and get some different facts, etc. And a lot of people, I think, feel patronized um, by those people. That's sometimes our fault. We have to be very careful about the opposite too. Yeah. You know, there are experts. There is such a thing as expertise. There are some people that know more about what they're talking about than, than others. And if we lose the idea of that, if we lose the idea that there actually is, there are experts, and instead just everyone's their own expert seeking their own information, they're in real trouble. So we've got to guard against both the snobbery of the experts, potentially, but the inverse snobbery against the experts. Both of those, I think, are a big yep. problem right now. Yep. Who's next with a question? <laughs> As the news landscape is changing with us millennials really dissecting news very quickly from things like Snapchat instead of Facebook or the media, what do you think, what do you think is their role right now, like Snapchat, for example? Because I've noticed as a millennial, I'm looking at news a lot more on Snapchat than anything else because it's not only quick, but it's very interactive as in it's really quick to get to, but just the swiping of it makes it really a lot more interactive just than just looking at a long video. Uh. 
So you're on Snapchat. I am not on Snapchat. You're not? No. Twi- Twitter is, oh, no, Twitter is tough enough. You're on Instagram. Yeah, I'm on Instagram. That's no, right. I'm But not. just to post pictures no, of no. my pug. Um, that's, the only, that's the only reason I'm on Instagram, really. I, have, oh, I, have, I follow you on Instagram. I, like I have millennials who are, have do yeah, that people for do me. That for yeah, people do that for you. Yeah, I do that for me. Uh, so <laughs> uh, what, what I'll say is um, I, I think it's really dangerous, right, to rely on sources of information that are that brief and that uh, unchecked. And so it's not bad to get information from Snapchat, but like anything, it's bad to get information from one source, like, like John and Richard had said. And I think the more you abbreviate that, um, there are benefits. Like Richard said, social, mobilities, uh, me- uh, social mobility memos, um, Richard's blog has a cap at 500 words. That's very effective because, as he said, we know from our web statistics that people are going to spend quite a bit more time on those than 2,000 word stories. But sometimes those 2,000 word posts need to be written. Absolutely. You cannot condense what needs to be said in 500 words. And so we have longer form um, outlets, other blogs um, have longer um, items, we have short papers, full papers, etc. And so I think just diversifying what you're getting news from uh, is a good thing, but for any generation, whether it is um, you know, uh, the baby boom generation that is increasingly getting its news from Facebook, um, whether it is a millennial generation that is, I- or, or the n- generation after that that is increasingly getting news from new sources, um, those, uh, the temptation, I think, to settle into what is just quick and easy uh, is, is dangerous. And so thinking about anything that you do that uh, is quick and easy always going to be better? No, it's not always going to be better. Sometimes it will. The same is true for uh, social media access to news, I think. So the, the danger with any of those forms of social media is self-selection of who you're following. Mm-hmm. Um, so I agree with John. Some, the way I like to think about this is like a pyramid. Um, so you have a tweet that links to a blog, which links to a longer paper, which links to a book. Okay? You just accept the fact that not everyone's going to read the book. So I, I've, you know, my book's out there and people have bought it and that's great. But the truth is that you know, the book's going to sell you know, uh, thousands of copies, you know, maybe tens of thousands of copies. I wrote an op-ed based on it for the New York Times, which was one of the top 10 most read articles of that year, Milli- millions of readers. And it c- condensed the argument of the book into uh, a thousand words. Okay? Didn't dumb it down, I just condensed yeah. it. In terms of having the impact with the ideas, I'll, I'll take that. Right? I had to condense it to, to a thousand words, maybe someone could buy the book. And then I tweeted a short a sentence from my, so it's a pyramid, you, you, you just, it, there's no reason why you can't do all of these things at the same time. The problem with Snapchat or Twitter is who you follow. So I've just discovered there's a couple of apps you can do that examine your Twitter, who you're following on Twitter, and then recommend other people you should follow who take the contrary view. I can't remember what they're called now, but I installed that. Because there is this danger, you follow people, you follow people, you follow people, and then Twitter just becomes this kind of, you know, wonderful bathing in all your priors and prejudices as people just l- agree with everything yeah. you think yeah. on your Twitter feed, right? Uh, and so it's just this kind of, it's like taking a, it's like, like taking a long bath, you know, in, in your own confirmation <laughs> views, right? Uh, and you need to do the opposite. So I intentionally, install that, and I intentionally follow people whose views I deeply disagree with. Um, so otherwise, you, do, you, you could just, as you say, just select your echo chamber and then bathe in it. Yeah, I, I have a lot of Twitter followers, but I, I, I follow a lot of people I, 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 I don't agree with. I try yeah. to follow a, a rainbow right. of different yeah, uh, views, and I can tell you from my mentions, a lot of people disagree with stuff that I put out, so uh, <laughs> I, I, th- th- that happens. But I do think that we in the media, to, to, to your point a little bit, and I'll talk a little bit about just because what, what my uh, experience at The Independent has been, and I'm, 
My, I have a 22-year-old son. He's, he tells me stuff that he found out, and I said, where'd you read that? And he says, on Facebook. He reads. He gets all his news almost off of Facebook. And it's mostly, it, 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 he's at least following good stuff, and he's getting good, good information. Not uh, everybody does that, but I'm not, I'm, I'm, I admit it, I'm almost never on Facebook. But I hire these uh, young people. I, I have a very savvy managing editor when it comes to social media, and she says, we have to post all our stuff on Facebook. You'll see we're going to get many or most of our readers from Facebook and Twitter. Twitter I'm very familiar with. Uh, and it's true, most of, our, most of our readers come from social media. Mm -hmm. That's the portal yeah. through which they enter, uh, which is fine. Which is fine, and, and I think it's great, but we have to be open to that. Uh, I'm, I'm astounded, and I shouldn't have been astounded, when I see that 55% or 60% of the people who read the Nevada Independent are reading it on their phone. They're reading, which is yes, why we made our, and we, we knew we, we knew there was going to be a lot. We knew there was going to be a lot, and that's why we made sure when we when we had the site built that it was going to have a very mobile friendly site because I want people who only get their news on their phone to be able to have a good experience with it. That's another thing that people in the media and so one of the things again we're committed to. I hate to be hyping the Nevada Independent uh, so <laughs> actually I don't, but uh, <laughs> we don't have any ads on our site. It was a decision. It's cost us, obviously, a lot of money. We've been offered a lot of ads, but I like the clean look of the site. I hate going on to news sites where you're immediately bombarded with ads popping up or autoplay videos or, or, or the yeah, rest yeah. of it. Mm -hmm. People do appreciate mm -hmm. it, of all ages, by, by the way, yeah, sure. we, we, we found. So you just have to adapt. I think we need to adapt. I wish that all of you would, be, uh, would, be, would adapt more, but we can't expect that. We can't count on that. We should adapt to you. Mm. Uh, hello, real quick. I, I appreciate uh, where you went. We're talking about the the talent of the uh, reporters, the news media out there, and but also it seemed that was missed as uh, the content that's put out there. Um, there's lack of a, a I guess a accountability for what is being fed, right? I mean, uh, to clarify it up. In today's world, uh, the Stormy Daniels story, for instance, I saw that as two consenting adults, you know, had an affair. No one was surprised that Trump had an affair. And the real story is the money, the payoff at a campaign, right? But how many times do they lead it off with porn star, you know, et cetera, to sensationalize it? I think is She's why, a porn star. With, with why that you know uh, you get these uh, these quick clicks, right? You just want to get this click. There seems to be this race, you know, to get that viewer to get that click on the story. The same with the uh, the guy, the Nunberg, who was a train wreck in all these things. I kind. thought there was I thought it was irresponsible uh, putting him on because while there were, if you're paying attention, there were bits and pieces that you can glean from what he was rambling about, but you saw somebody coming undone on TV, and I thought it was a disservice, because most people aren't seeing that. They didn't get the information that was important. They only saw the train wreck. Sure. And so I think, I don't know if you would agree, that the media t should take more responsibility and things like that. Well, of course the media should take more responsibility. In case, there may be some people who are not 
I don't have the, the, the advantage that William has, and he can sit in front of cable TV all day and watch Sam Nunberg all day. But so in case you don't know what he's talking about, Sam Nunberg, former guy, used to work for Trump, started in the morning, was essentially on every cable TV show, and it got worse and worse to the point where in the afternoon, Aaron Burnett directly asked him, have you been drinking? I smell alcohol uh, on your breath. And people thought, oh great, Aaron Burnett's being real tough. It was ridiculous by then. The, this was a guy who was, he was, he was essentially, as you, as you described it, he was melting down. There was no purpose to have him on except to draw people to your show. Put out on Twitter, we got Nunberg next, and you'll tune, and you'll tune. There was no news coming. Now, he did say a couple of newsworthy things fairly uh, early on, uh, potentially newsworthy things, but we do need to take more responsibility. And, you know, uh, porn star Stormy Daniels, that, that is a story for the reason that you, that you mentioned, especially since uh, the, the, the story of Trump's lawyer has shifted, especially since the president's story itself has shifted, especially since uh, Michael Cohen suddenly decided to set up this uh, shell company uh, with, with a misleading name and then paid $130,000 uh, to somebody as if the president never knew about this. Uh, you know, you have to suspend your disbelief. Should there be as much energy poured into that story as there is? Of course not. But this is the complaint I hear all the time. You guys just want clicks. You're going to sensationalize everyone. You know what? There's a way to avoid that. You can go to a different site. You can turn the channel. You can go read Richard's book if you really want substance. Nobody, you're welcome. You. Nobody, nobody has to stay on this. There are, this is the advantage yeah of having so many choices. Not everyone is covering Stormy Daniels. You can go read Molly Ball's long pieces uh, uh, in the Atlantic or, or, or wherever. Mm -hmm. uh, you, can, you can do this if you make the choice. It's both easy to do the Stormy Daniels kinds of stories for the media, and it's easy for consumers to read that, as opposed to having uh, to plow through, you know, Richard's tendentious scholarly work. You know, right? <laughs> I give and I take. <laughs> so, uh, you have read it. <laughs> so, but I'm being facetious to make a point. I just this is the criticism of the media. I just I, I can't abide. People, you have so many choices. You can get away from it if you want to. But people get transfixed. A lot of people were transfixed by the Nunberg thing because it was like watching a, a slow motion train wreck all day long without any regard until afterwards that this was a guy who has some serious mental issues, he may have a drinking problem, uh, and, and he's just melting, and there's no news value in it. There was no news value in it after a certain point. And does, should the media be more responsible? Yeah. Do a lot of cable TV stations uh, and networks, are they, are they driven by the competitive nature of that business now? And that the, if they had Numberg, we got to get Numberg? Yeah. It happens, I'm, I, I, I'm sorry that it happens. I've been on cable TV a lot, as some of you know, and I like a lot of the people there. But those decisions are made, and, and they're not good decisions. Nunberg thing was highly unusual, but the premise behind it was not that unusual. Hi, thank you. Um, basically, my interest is on education and jobs being created in Southern Nevada. So obviously I followed the news out here and followed uh, the different papers in the Nevada Independent. I was very impressed with the Pulitzer that came in 2009 when they were talking about safety uh, in regards to city center being built. Um, what was interesting, what was kind of surprising about that is that it's my observation that we live in a town with few stakeholders and one of the big casino companies that was written about in a negative manner um, by that Pulitzer um, winning article um, I'll tell, I'll tell you about showed insight into the big stakeholders in this town. 
um, in the last couple of years, in the last few months, there's been a couple of stories that have uh, gained a lot of national notoriety that have dealt with uh, big stakeholders. Um, the Nevada Independent did a very great, very good job in terms of the accountability and transparency from what I read in your behind the scenes type articles or your editorials where you uh, delved into your methodology or rationale for explaining how you reported and broke a story uh, related to one of the congressmen here. Um, so I, my hat's off to you on that. You did an excellent even-handed job on that in my opinion. Um, on the other end of the spectrum, I'm not condoning his actions or I'm not validating him, especially in National Women's uh, Week and obviously this town has had issues um, with a culture that needs to change and a paradigm that needs to change in terms of uh, um, equality and uh, misogyny towards women. So I'm not condoning anything done by Wynn, um, but by the same token, it's my observation that the storytelling or reporting on that wasn't as even-handed from what I've initially read and just not reading the, not reading the, uh, not reading the uh, headlines, but reading the story it seems like there was more hearsay or um, a lot of distance between the stories. Um, I don't know him, I don't really have any inter interaction with Steve Wynn, but it just seems like those stories that caused uh, you know, massive, massive moves of the stock on a hearsay rumor uh, maybe wouldn't have made it the press in other towns and other eras. And I was just wondering your opinion on that, sir. Well, let me, let me tie that all together. Um, uh, um, and and uh, I don't buy, by the way, your characterization of the wind stories, but I'll get to that in a second. Uh, Alexandra Berzon, who won the Pulitzer for, for the Las Vegas Sun, is a fantastic reporter. And, and the, the series that you're talking about that Sun won the Pulitzer for in 2009 had to do with uh, a lack of OSHA inspections by the state. And she discovered some real... Uh, a really bad negligence that was going on, and, and to the Sun's credit, it reported this even, as you correctly described it, in a company town. That's what happened, and, and that story deserved the Pulitzer, and I'm glad she won it. You fast forward. Alexandra Berzon went to the Wall Street Journal. Uh, she is now part of the team that broke the Steve Wynn story. You want to talk about an ironic closing of the circle. That story that they broke on Steve Wynn um, was not based on hearsay. That story was based on 150 sources. They took weeks and weeks to report that. It was based on a court document that they managed to get a hold of, which contained some startling information uh, in it. A lot more information has come out since then. So I give them all the credit in the world. It's a horrific story for, for Steve Wynn, for those women who were involved. It's absolutely unimaginable what they had to go through. Um, but it also speaks to a new kind of journalism that had, that, and it's a new frontier for I think a lot of us, and that we had to be cognizant of when we reported on some sexual harassment allegations against a congressman uh, uh, that, that you alluded to. Uh, it's hard to get people to go on the record yeah. in those stories. It's hard to get some of these, these women want to talk, a lot of them, their friends want them to talk, but they don't want to thrust their names out there for all kinds of reasons that, by the way, most men don't understand. And I was very glad, by the way, when we were reporting on, on that, that, that the two lead reporters were women and, and they were able to gain the confidence of these women. I met with them as well, but I think it did matter. I, I, that, but we, we decided to grant these women anonymity after we looked at their phones, saw the text messages, talked to their friends, talked to contemporaneous accounts. It's not, it's not an easy story to report. 
And unfortunately, there's going to be uh, some backlash to all this because there's going to be people who are not that careful about sure. it. It's already happened. Mm. And you shouldn't equate what Reuben Keewen did to what Steve Wynn did to what Harvey Weinstein did. Not all these stories are equal, but most of them are damn important and should have been told a long time ago, especially in this town. And, and it's not a Las Vegas thing or a Southern Nevada thing. Um, uh, so the name of the mayor of Nashville is David Briley. Two days ago, the name of the mayor of Nashville was <laughs> Megan Barry. Megan Barry decided to begin an affair with her personal security attache as mayor of Nashville. Um, this cost the city of Nashville a significant amount of money. Um, his overtime that he accrued while he was on the job um, was able to elevate the pension that he was due as a state employee, as a city employee. Um, uh, two days ago, Megan Berry pled guilty in court to theft of over $10,000, um, resigned as mayor of Nashville, and that story came about, and the root of that story is not a sex scandal, it's not um, anything about the, the state of, uh, you know, that, the t scandal in America, it was about the misappropriation of taxpayer dollars. Um, and how did that come about? Because of hard reporting. People digging into the books in Nashville. <coughs> people sourcing a lot of people, whether they were state employees, whether they were people signing reimbursement forms, whether they were city cemetery employees who happened to be serving the cemetery that the mayor and her boyfriend liked to go to in the mornings and the evenings. Um, it took a lot of really hard-nosed reporting to get this right. And ultimately, and I think a, a testament to where we are right now in a, a period of the Me Too movement, um, no one is really safe from this. If you are misappropriating funds, if you are engaging in inappropriate behaviors in the workplace, if you're engaged in sexual harassment, whether you're a male or a female or a secretary or a CEO, um, people are going to find out. And typically people find out because of damn good journalism, um, because a whistleblower comes forward and then that gets multiply sourced. Um, sometimes there's bad journalism, like John said, and a story gets out there because one person said something and it's hearsay, but when you have 30 or 40 or 120 sources, uh, that person's probably a slime bag. Um, and, and you can be pretty safe that the reporting that went behind that is good and strong. Um, I wanted to ask a question more about academics and the peer review process, because um, it's easy to just blame bad reporting, but I think we've all sat in committee hearings, whether it's in DC or in Carson City, where a policymaker says, well, I've got this study, and points to the study and the facts, and you can look at some really bad studies with terrible sample frames or terrible methods, um, tiny sample sizes, et cetera, <laughs> and they're out there and they pass the peer review process um, of course, other academics see it and have a counter, um, you know, evidence. But it's still out there, and um, policymakers will pick it up, judges will pick it up, and use it to arm themselves with data. Um, and it's still out there. So, I my question is, what are your thoughts on that whole process? And then, what can you do about it when they're there? You can't really. Um, you know, Mr. Ralston can't go and ask them what it is and study it and 
et cetera. So I just, I guess it's more of what are your thoughts on that? So I was asked this question last year, I think, a question similar to this last year with a group of journalism and mass communication students. Um, and it's, I'm not going to speak necessarily about the peer review process because that's something that's really challenging and very complicated and uh, some places don't have any. Um, other places have reputable ones and trying to figure out where it's good and where it's not is difficult. But one of the things that can be done to improve um, upon the nature of reporting around research like this, I think, is for every journalism student, my apologies to the journalism students in the room, uh, should take a research design class and a statistics class before they get their degree. So that you can consume this type of evidence and report on it in a more accurate way. Um, because you have a lot of reporters who are doing their damnedest to understand what is oftentimes very dense, and sometimes not all that dense, research methodology. But if you don't have any training in it, it's hard to distinguish between what is good and what is bad, what is well done and what is poorly done. As a lot of you know, I do work on marijuana policy. There is a research report that's put out um, every two years called the Rocky Mountain High Intensity Drug Trafficking Report. It is uh, statistical analysis at its worst. Um, conclusions are in, or undermines of conclusions are in footnotes or endnotes. It's very poorly done, but you see some journalists just eat it up. Um, and other journalists really calling into question what that is. And the journalists calling it into question are either sourcing people who have that background or have that research methodological background themselves. And that's critically important in an increase in era which is increasingly relying on data and statistics and more so relying on data visualization to get information across. Like Richard said before, um, you could come up with a, a finding and find the data to support that. Oh, yeah. Now, the design of that data, the analysis of that data, et cetera, might be garbage, but you're going to be able to put that out there. And so it's wading through that that I think is a really important process to reporting it. So you put pressure on, I think, the academy and on the consumers of the, the stuff that comes out of the academy. John's focus more on the, the latter. But um, I, if you're a journalist and there's an article that's been through a peer review process to appear in a, reasonably, you know, in a journal that has decent standing, then you might reasonably expect to be able to report the findings from that study, right? So we shouldn't expect journalists to have to become academics in order to consume academic literature. That is kind of, that is kind of the job of academics. But what's happened is that the academy is under pressure too. So you've seen a proliferation of journals, the peer review process is getting weaker all the time, and one of the reasons it's getting weaker is they can't find enough reviewers. It's very hard to persuade people to spend the time kind of doing reviewers. And, the, and as a result, there are some very, very weak academic journals out there. And so the academy really has to pay much more attention to that. However, uh, what also happens is that because peer review takes so long, academics want to get their work out more quickly. And so we've seen the rise of the working paper, particularly in economics, where I spend a lot of my time. The working paper and the National Bureau of Economic Research, for example, puts out working papers all the time. They're not peer reviewed. Not, not formally peer-reviewed. Very often they will end up in a peer-reviewed article, and frankly, the, the quality is pretty variable. How then am I going to uh, how am I going to decide which one to report? Turns out, you get to trust certain scholars and certain teams. So Raj Chetty, who's the leading academic in my field, who you've all heard me talk about this week, has all the IRS data, Facebook data, census data. His work and his team are exemplary in their scholarship, and I trust them. I trust them because their work's been scrutinized, and because they are truthful. They are, I trust that they're trying to present their data kind of properly. 
So I've, I've learned to trust them, and so I, I do use their work. Um, but I also think that this is a good news story for journalism. When I was reporting, way back when, all journalists were enumerate. I mean, not just not trained in statistics, but virtually enumerate. And so anybody could push a survey on their desk and say a survey found that you know, X percent of people prefer to have sex in Y position, or that wh whatever it was, and it would go straight in the paper. Um, and I would criticize the methodology sometimes too. Now, actually, with the rise of institutions like yours, but also Vox, Upshot, these kind of spin-offs, there's data-driven journalism now, that actually the scrutiny is much, much greater than it was. I think journalists are getting better. They are becoming uh, more discerning. But I think, it's, I think it's incumbent on both sides to get better at that, because otherwise, you're right, the danger is, Tell me what you want to say, and I'll find you a study. Well, it's interesting. If I heard you right the last thing you said. We can't expect Mr. Ralston to actually read the study. So you think we're just spoon-fed <laughs> this stuff. But let, 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 me, let me talk a little bit about, about, about that, because it is, it, it is, there, there's an analogy to made, be made to something else, hmm. too. And you talked about sitting in committee hearings in Washington and in Carson City. Here's what lobbyists do. They're working. I'll just, I just use an industry. and this has, I'm just going to use an example. Pharma will have bills that are, that, are, that are going to be put out that they consider hostile. So pharma will pay for a study. And they will have academics do the study. Um, uh, and, and then you, and, and will they be influenced by the money? Some will, some won't, right? Depending on, on, on their integrity. But it can also be accurate, but not true in, in, in a certain way, depending on, mm -hmm. uh, on, on the context. And then people who are lobbyists, not that there's anything wrong with lobbyists, uh, Edith, um, well, we'll present this to legislators yeah. who are not experts in this, and they'll say, look, here's what the study shows. You can't pass this bill. You'll destroy our company. If they will give it to journalists, and they'll say, look at this. This is going to destroy our company. Now, uh, okay, that's your motivation, lobbyist X, in doing this, industry Y, in doing this. I do think journalists uh, often will not have time, and they'll read the executive summary because it's a 75-page study or a 200-page, and they'll read, oh, okay, let's do a story on this, and I'll go get a soundbite from the, from the legislator and then and, and soundbite from the opposing industry, and that's a story. Now, mm. it's different. I think more journalists, if they're doing their job, will read the whole study. They will think about who funded it. They'll think about whether that had an impact or not, and mm -hmm. guess what they can do now, and what we do with almost in any situation like this, we post the study. You can post it. You can scan it. You can have it in a digital form. You can post it. Let people judge for themselves if they will. Finally, the analogy I'll make is to polling and how journalists handle polling of any kind, especially mm -hmm. in political campaigns. Uh, there is a ton of there are a ton of people out there now who think they're pollsters, and they, 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 can, they can set up a boiler room. They can set up just, they can set up on their computer. There's a program and it can call a bunch of numbers and they can get that and say this is a poll showing X, Y, or Z. And they're putting it out for, for a purpose to try to influence the outcome uh, of, of certain things. When I was uh, started out covering politics, I got poll. I love data. This is great, and I put it out. I learned over the time, and most unfortunately, too many journalists don't. That you got to look at the internals of a poll. Yeah. You got to mm -hmm. see whether the demographics are correct. Mm -hmm. You got to see whether the sample size makes any sense. And if we're talking about Nevada, did they survey uh, the right numbers of people in Washoe County and rural Nevada and in Clark County? Because if you don't, you're going to get skewed results. Someone wants that poll out for a reason, uh, and so you got You got to. The, that kind of, in, it takes more mm. time, right? Mm. And unfortunately, still the pressures of journalism to get stuff out first, to, to get it out in a splashy way, if you don't take that kind of time, you could put out information that's incredibly damaging. Mm. 
uh, even if it's accurate, mm -hmm. it may not be true. Yeah, that's a good point. I, since our time is dwindling here, I'm going to pose one last question for you, and that's let's make the great assumption that we've all read the Nevada Independent, <coughs> we've read Richard's book, we've watched his lectures, we've written, uh, read John's marijuana books. Talk, talk to us I about a, a mention. <laughs> That's not a big assumption. Wait, I didn't hear your question. The question I'm slowly getting Sounds to like a nice is, world, though, that he's yeah. describing, though. Is, could, it, could each of you give us an information site that's not present there on, on the dais that you would recommend after we've consumed all yours that we should all be looking at, whether it's print or electronic or... Actually, uh, I, I don't know what they're going to say, but I'll tell you what I'm going to say. I'm not going to do that because I think the danger in just saying is, is, and we've talked about, all of us have talked about this the way, it's not, there's not just one site. Right. Uh, the most important thing that people can do now is read as many sites as they can, discern what the good ones are, read things that you might not naturally agree with. If, if, if you are a liberal, go on commentary site or go on National Review site and look at that stuff. If you're a conservative, go and read Slate. Do that. It will help you as a thinker. It will help you, it will help you gain knowledge to Richard's earlier point that you otherwise will not be exposed to. Uh, I just think the diversity of, 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 of inputs is the most important thing uh, that, that, that people can do. And that's, that's what will help us escape from what I described as the validation culture. Unless people do that, nothing's going to change. I will mention a site, but I, I've already mentioned him, and people are, who've heard me speak are bored of me using his name, but Raj Chetty at Stanford. Uh, he runs something called the Equality of Opportunity Project. As I mentioned, he has the IRS data. He's just linked it to the Census Bureau data, and he's also now got access to Facebook data too. He's an exemplary economist, James Bay, Medal Prize, blah, blah, blah. And what I love about what Raj is doing is that rather than just kind of figuring out how he can become the youngest Nobel Prize winner, because he clearly will get the Nobel at some point, um, what he's actually doing is he's trying to take that data into communities and help them use it to actually inform policy. Um, so he's working in Charlotte and Atlanta and various other places. Maybe we could entice him here. I would go to the Equality of Opportunity Project website page. It has executive summaries of every paper, which are brilliantly written. Uh, it has all the slides of their presentations, which are incredibly crisply produced. It has the long paper, the 200 version paper with all the equilibrium models and all of that in there too. And it has both Excel and Stata download versions of every single data point in every single study they have ever done. Uh, and that is just exemplary public scholarship. So if you want to know what percent, like the stuff I presented last night, what percentage of the kids who are attending this institution come from which income quintile and what their median in income is in adulthood, download the Excel spreadsheet and do the work of analyzing the data. It's extraordinary public data. Um, so go there, you can trust the data, and when they go live in about a month with the Census Bureau data too, there's an interactive which will allow you to click on every census tract in the US and discover the outcomes for every kid that grew up in that block based on their race, their age, and their gender. It's just extraordinary data, and it's, high it's the best quality data you're going to find. Ignore all the survey nonsense that's out there, and bin my book because it's based on other data. <laughs> And buy John's marijuana book, which is really short <laughs> and incredibly well written. 
so I'm going to straddle bo both camps. I appreciate the, the endorsement. I do recommend that you buy marijuana at short history. Um, uh, but uh, John is right about consuming a lot of different information. Don't just go to one site. Um, all of that is important. But one of the other things that I've found to be important is to get to know your journalist. Um, good journalists are good journalists, period, no matter what outlet they're at. Um, you can have a good person at a really lousy outlet. You can have a lousy person at a top-tier outlet. Mm -hmm. And follow those people where they go, because if they're good one year, they're probably going to be good 10 years from now as well. Um, and so I think one, one example of this that sort of hits close to home, Bill and I were talking about this yesterday, uh, was, uh, is a journalist at the Huffington Post. The Huffington Post is extraordinarily liberal. You are not going to find, other than some opinion um, pieces, much of a conservative viewpoint on that website. But they also have some pretty good reporting as well. Um, and there's perspective in a lot of things. But um, there is a journalist there named Matt Ferner. And I've worked with Matt several times. He's a damn good journalist. And he did a piece, a, actually a two-part series, on the 1 October shooting here. And the second piece he went through every single autopsy report of everyone who died that night and described their fatal wounds. It's a little bit sensationalist, yes. But the point he was making was that you hear about a mass shooting. You hear about what weapons like this do generally. It kills a bunch of people. You almost never hear about how those people die. Uh, and I started this story, and again, I, I like Matt a lot, but I started this story thinking that it would be sensationalized. Um, it was one of the finest pieces of writing I've read this year um, because it opened my eyes to what typically only detectives, lawyers, and coroners see on a daily basis. Uh, and that type of detailed reporting is great. And I know Matt before this story, and I know that if I see something from him, I'm going to continue to read it. Skeptically, of course, we all make mistakes, as John said. Uh, but when you find those reporters, I mentioned Amber Phillips before. If Amber Phillips' name is on something, I know I can trust it. Mm -hmm. That type of trust is important in news. But trust multiple news sites. There are really good journalists at Fox News. There are some journal, a lot of journalists with perspective at Fox News. But because someone writes for Fox News does not make them a bad journalist. Too often we equate those two things. We equate the site we don't like or the site we do like with quality. And nothing could be further from the truth. And so when you find those journalists, even if it's something you disagree with, look at it and say, is this well done? If it's well done, keep reading that person. Even if they piss you off every time you read that, their articles, if it's good journalism, it's still good journalism. Before I thank our panel, I want to thank all of you for coming and for your questions. And we hope we'll see you at our next event. But now let's all thank our panel. That's it for this week's Indie Matters podcast. I'm John Ralston, the editor of the Nevada Independent. We'll be back next week. Yeah.